Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 389 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find a wonderfully supportive writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with my partner in crime, Alison Tate, also known as the author A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? I am fair to middling. Okay, good. After much consideration, I am fair <laughs> to middling, um, which, you know, is not a bad place to be. Here we are in the sort of beginning of March. I can't believe that we're kind of like rolling through the year quite as quickly as we are, oh. um, but it's also not a bad thing. Well, yes, okay. Well, for once, I'm kind of fair to middling, but I'm on the up of fair to right. middling. Yes. Okay. Why why are you fair to middling and why are you on the up? I'm fair one, to middling. One must inquiring minds must know. Well, very, very important, I'm sure. Uh, because last week was a week full of food disappointment for me. Oh no. Oh, I hate that, don't you? I hate that. Uh, like what that happened? day after day after day after day. Like you'd go somewhere, you know, because you're so psyched up that you've got your favorite dish coming up and you get there even though you've checked that the closing time, but their kitchen closes an hour earlier than the closing time, right? So oh. there's that. Is this the cronut situation all over again? That was one of the <laughs> 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 Yeah. So that was one of the food disappointment incidences. Oh wow. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, all too hard. Um but then there would there would be another place and I'd go there, it was open, the kitchen is open, but they ran out of that dish. So this happened literally every day last week, often for like two times in one day, and wow. then it was exacerbated by technological issues. So I had many first world problems last week, so I was a little bit, you know, feeling sorry for myself. But today I thought I'm just going to go have breakfast. I'm, mm. ta- I'm going to treat myself, go up, take myself out for a for breakfast and it was delightful <laughs> oh there you go so this week has begun much better yes what what dishes were you actually desperately seeking i'm <gasps> kind of fascinated by that i love pokey you know pokey mm. i love pokey so there's a place in mona vale that has really great pokey and so um i had, was hanging out to go there but no uh, no disappointment um what else I wanted French toast at this place that I know had French toast, but no, they've gone all healthy and everything's like a green bowl. Oh, no. I that's know. Right. That's <laughs> <really disappointing. laughs> when you're all set for maple syrup and absolutely <laughs> boombalardiness and all you've got is a green bowl. <laughs> well, do you know what? I went, I'll tell you what I did. Yes. Is, um, I've been to several breweries <laughs> just oh. randomly. <laughs> Oh, well, Which you've makes had me sound like such a lush. Yeah. But several breweries in the last week, and uh, they were all good. Oh. So you know, um, <sighs> there's a new one in the in the Shoalhaven in my area called South Yeast. Uh, which is run by a couple of lovely blokes I know. And um, we went there yesterday and that was great. And then on Friday we were up at the Southern Highlands Brewery, uh, which is just a great building and just good beers and good food and really nice well, serving Well, after all that alcohol, shouldn't you be more than fair to middling? Well, no, because you just have a little taste. Like I wasn't like okay. knocking back six schooners at each one. You wouldn't have had to pour <laughs> me into the car if that was the case. But, yeah, it's just nice to – I don't know. I guess it's – we're very lucky, Valerie. I think yes. we just have to 
basically embrace all of the good things here because we can go and do this stuff. We can go do things. You know, and there's still a lot of people that can't do that. So I'm just all for – and I think people are – the Kayama, which is um, up the road from where I live, Mm. uh, down here on the south coast, they had a jazz festival on the weekend and it was – chaos there were so many people there and i think it's mm. just all of that pent up yes desire to Get go out. and mm. do and Normal. you know experience live performance and all of that kind of stuff so um you know okay so maybe i'm not fair to middling maybe i'm actually also swinging on the upside Woo-hoo! of fair to middling which is you know <laughs> all right anyway we have blathered we need to move all on all right so something that is way more than fair to middling is that we have a lovely review from Brandon Perkins about our book so oh, for, yahoo. yes so for those of you who are not yet familiar with uh, our book it is called unsurprisingly so you want to be a writer <laughs> and um it's so great to receive this feedback on it and brandon perkins has uh called it uh really liked it <laughs> called his review oh, really liked it like and uh this book is a much-needed dose of positivity for writers starting out. Lots of solid advice from a lot of different professional writers, including breakdowns of different avenues available to those looking to break into the field. Yes. Well, that's, that's what we set out to achieve, Valerie, right. so I'm pretty happy that, uh, that that's what Brandon's taken away from it. And I do love the fact that, you know, that it is a much-needed dose of positivity. Yes. Even when we're feeling fair to middling, we're still... Yes. Pretty positive, right? Yeah, because, I mean, we think both of us, I'm sure I speak on both of us, uh, on, on behalf of both of us when I say that we really think that this career is a great one. There's so much to yeah. get out of it. There's so much flexibility. There's so much reward. Um, so, yeah, if you want to get your copy of the book, go to writercenter.com.au slash book. That's writercenter.com.au slash book. And if you have already had, uh, a, you know, received the book or, or, or bought the book and read it, um, we'd love to hear what you think as well with a review. All right. So let's move on. You have an interesting link for us from The Right Life. Is that right? Well, I do. It's actually a link for you, right? Okay. So I found the link, but what I really want you to do is talk me through the link. So okay. it's about UX writing ah. and it says breaking into UX writing, a guide to one of tech's fastest growing writing jobs. Now, I know that the Australian Writers Centre runs a course on this and I actually do share, you know, social media posts and things about it. Um, but I don't think I would be alone mm. in not really understanding what it is, Valerie, because um, this, I actually found this post quite useful. Like it really breaks it down. What is UX writing? How long has it been around? Why is it not just called copywriting, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because I guess that's a question that I, those are the sorts of questions that I've had about it for a long time. So I just wanted to share the link with you for you to have a look at it and maybe just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what what UX writing is, like sure. this brave new world of, of copywriting. Okay, well, UX writing is really exploding at the moment because of um, all of our interactions with screens, devices, um, you know, whether that's phones, whether that's on our TV, like via Netflix, whether that's on our computer. So it's it's our interaction with these screens that have 
spearheaded this this real explosion in the need for UX writers because what UX writing is now this post says what is UX writing a UX write this is and the post says a UX writer crafts the words that appear within software interfaces but I would actually say it is far more accurate to say that a UX writer crafts the words that appear on screens Because it's not just software, because when you open Netflix, you don't think of it as software. It's just this thing on your TV, right? Um, When you're chatting to your bank on your via your phone through Messenger or whatever, you don't think of it as software. It's just communicating via your phone. So Mm. UX writing um, and what a UX writer does is crafts the words that appear on screens, not just. So at a basic level, it's the words that are on a website that guide a user of that website down a particular path. So, for example, if it was, you know, an online shopping website, um, the UX writer crafts the words not only um, about the products, of course, but guides you, say, on what to click next because sometimes when you're adding things to a cart, it can be complicated. You know, mm. you've got to add delivery, you've got to add all, the, all sorts of options. So the writing guides you to your next step in your interactional behaviour. So that's on, say, on a web uh, page. But like I said, if you have Netflix, the way you interact with Netflix, and I know for those of you <clears throat> who, like me, <laughs> watch many streaming services, they've all got different um, pathways to get to a particular episode or to even mm-hmm. to find a particular episode. And some of the UX, the user interface, is a lot easier than others. Mm, that's very true yeah and I guess we don't think about when we're using those things we don't actually think about the kind of the secret art of guiding us to where we want to go next that's right but we do we do recognize the frustration when it's not right yes because some of the channels not naming any names it's very it's illogical illogical so so yes it's it's things like it's things like when you interact with screens on your tv or or even screens like at the shopping center when you're you know using those kiosks those digital Mm. kiosks to Mm. look up stuff but it's also for example um you know how sometimes you have uh chat bots so you might ask a question but and and your question might be a completely valid question but interestingly that the the behind the scenes of that chatbot or the behind the scenes of whatever's answering you is going to a database somewhere to find an answer right because it recognizes you've asked a question about x and it keywords. will yes with keywords yeah. but it takes time for mm. the for 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 the um uh, the behind the scenes to go back into the database to find the right answer to bring it back to you and to display it on your screen. So a UX writer is even responsible for writing the words that appear in the meantime. So or you almost like filler conversation words, you know, like um, just a moment there. Where, where, oh yeah. So and, and that's a straightforward forward one, but some um, chatbots are a little bit quirkier and a little bit funnier. So mm. so it's even used for that sort of thing as well. Um, Mm. So basically any interaction that you have on a screen, a UX writer is typically involved and it's becoming um, much more important and much more needed because you will experience sometimes stuff that doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Like you Mm. go click on the green button, there's actually no green button. So... (laughs) <laughs> so at its most basic level, yeah. at least make sure the green button is there, right? So what's happening is that in the past, a lot of that writing actually fell to, just by accident, 
the like the techies, the programmers, because they were the yes. people, you know, they, they didn't recognize how important those words were. So they left it to some of those people who some did a great job and others they wrote it in a really techie way or they didn't sort of write it with um, a great deal of warmth <laughs> um, uh, in mind because, you know, the customer wasn't at the forefront of their particular, um, you know, set of stakeholders. And yeah. so now because people have realised the importance of it, what we're finding is that there are a lot of either marketing people or copywriters who are being asked to to, to to fill this role. Um, mm. And so that's why we do have a course on it, which is um, at the Australian Writers' Centre and it's called UX Writing and it's Learn the Art of UX Writing for Website and App Users and it's very specific on the kinds of words you should be using, the kinds of consumer behaviour you should be thinking about when you are communicating with these people. So if you want mm. to find out more, go to writercentre.com.au slash UX. But yeah, it's a whole it's a whole exciting new world of writing that a lot of people are getting into. So Yeah, and see people don't think about it as being a writing thing because yeah. they think it's just done by the techie people, but yep. in actual fact, I guess as as systems become more organic, so then too does instruction need to become more organic. Absolutely. It's so important. Mm. Very, very important. But let's move on to another post you have which I love and it's actually on your blog. Tell us about it. Well, you know, I've been threatening to write this post for so many years. I think every time we have a conversation, like every once in a while we'll be talking about X, Y or Z and I'll be like, oh, I've got to write that post about how to be interviewed. Um, so I've written it. I've written a post for authors about how to be interviewed. So, um, and I think it's because, well, the reason I wrote it was because, you know, um, a good friend of ours put up a post saying I have to be interviewed and I have no idea how to be interviewed. <laughs> and this is someone who has sold many novels many. and has been interviewed so many times mm. and is still remains nervous about interview being mm. interviewed because she's worried she's going to say the wrong thing and I totally understand that um and the reason so I actually I think we we do go into this in so you want to be a writer of the book a little mm. bit as well and one of the reasons that I even started thinking about this was because um I was involved a few years ago in a program that my son was part of where they did it he uh it was a songwriting thing and then they produced an album and then they, you know, they they sort of had to go through, um, you know, press releases and how to do various things. And um, one of the things that I did with them was I interviewed them to give them practice mm. on being interviewed mm. um, <clears throat> because it is a skill in itself. And it's something that I discovered as, you know, as an author, I'm very, very used to being, uh, you know, to being an interviewer and asking questions, um, but I wasn't as used to answering them. And one of the things that I guess I do have in my skill set and my toolbox is the fact that having interviewed so many people over so many years, mm. I have a fair idea of what kinds of questions people are going to ask me. Like there, yeah. it's a there's a fair pattern that goes to questions, and and I can sort of think as an interviewer, okay, I've got this author. What am I going to do with her? You know, like where am I going to put this? How am I going to position this article? And I can start to think about the kinds of questions that are going to be asked. So um, what I've done in this interview, uh, in this post rather, how to be interviewed, five tips for authors, you'll find it at alisontate.com. It's just looked at both sides of the interview table mm. and come up with my five top tips 
for authors to think about before an interview um, takes place because it's like anything that you ever do. The more prepared that you are, yeah. the more comfortable you're going to feel um, for any sort of situation like this. So my first tip is always to do a little bit of research about who is interviewing you what are they interviewing you for? Like for a blog, a website, a publication, a podcast, a radio station, um, you know, who is the audience for this particular blog, website, publication, radio station, whatever? Who are you actually going to be talking to? Um, because the audience matters. You know, your interviewer is going to tailor questions to that audience's interests. Mm. That's what I would do if I was interviewing you. Like if I'm interviewing you for So You Want to Be a Writer, mm. we are going to dive very, very deep into the process of writing. If yep. I am interviewing you for a general radio station kind of a situation, we're probably not going to do that. I'm going to talk to you about in a much more general way and if you're a local author I'm going to talk to you about local stuff as well as yeah. you know your book etc cetera, etc cetera. so you have to also then think about the why why are you being interviewed um, if you can think about why you're being interviewed then you can think about the kinds of questions your interviewer is going to ask you and if you can think about those kinds of questions you can have some answers ready um, so you know if you're being interviewed because you have a new novel out then your interviewer is going to want to know what the book is about to make sure your elevator pitch is strong. They're going to investigate any themes in the book, particularly any that are newsworthy, which is probably why they've chosen to interview mm. you over any other um, sort of, you know, new books that might be out that week. Know what the hook of your book is and be able to expand on it in a contemporary and newsworthy way. Um, also, they're going to want to know things like where can people find out more and how to buy it. So be ready. Have your website ready and be ready with the shorthand version of where am I going to get your book, Alison? Um, mm. If it's, on the other hand, you're being interviewed because it's book week, for mm. example, yeah. and you're a local author, then you need a bigger picture. You need to know the book week dates. You need to know yes. why is book week important in schools. You need to think about reading and any other angle that you can brainstorm. Um, and one tip that I'm going to give you here and never forget this because I have forgotten this on so many occasions is don't forget to mention the title of your latest book. <laughs> if mm. you're being interviewed for book week and you're a local author, your interviewer may not remember to actually mention the title yes. of your book. So make sure you do it. Bring it into your interview where you can. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like the other thing to think about then is the why is going to lead into the who, what, where and when. So an interviewer is always going to want to know who, what, where, when, why um, of any subject. Um, so that's journalism training. That's basic journalism yeah. training. It's in the back of your mind. So um, think about that as you know, as you're thinking about the kinds of questions that your interviewer is going to ask you. Um, yeah. And then – And on the, on the point of the who, what, where, when, why – if if you're say spruiking a book or a product or you know something like that just be aware of basic things like dates like the yep. number of people you that I've said oh when did you develop that product oh 2017 no 18 no 16 mm. no yeah, must have been 17 <laughs> make sure you have a little <laughs> fact sheet written down <laughs> Yeah, well, that that actually comes to my next point. Know what you want to say. Mm. Uh, it's really important, and I actually learned this from my good friend Valerie Koo, um, <laughs> who told me <laughs> who told me um, that your you know an interviewer is doing their job, and your job is to get your message across. So they're mm. doing their job. You're going to provide entertainment. You're going to provide information, but your job is to get your message across. So to make sure you do your job, create a cheat sheet. 
like write it all down, those dates, all of those things, but also the top five things that you want the audience to take away from your interview. Mm. Obviously, the name of your book and where to get your book. (laughs) Maybe, you know, like, so have that short pithy statement about what your book is about. Also, write down your answers to the most common questions that authors are asked. And I cannot actually, I can't emphasize the importance of this enough. Because I just remember the first time I was asked, you know, what my favorite, um, who who inspired me to be an author and mm-hmm. who my favorite author was and, and what was my favorite book ever. And these are the kinds of questions you're going to get asked over and over. And yes. I had no idea because <laughs> I don't have a favorite book. I have many favorite books. I don't have a favorite. You know, you, you really need to think about your audience, the audience again, mm. and, you know, come up with an answer for those questions for that audience. Um, it's really, really important that you do that. So have you can write them down. Like most interviews these days are going to be done via phone, Zoom, mm. Skype, even email, you know. So get your, like at the start, get your cheat sheet ready and then you can basically just adapt that cheat sheet to whatever, you know, it is that you're doing and you can have it right in front of you the whole time because no one's going mm. to see you. Um, so have it ready and y- you'll you'll just find it so much easier to work this stuff in to the uh, to your interviews if you have it there in front of you and you know yeah. and remember too it doesn't actually matter what question you're asked you can still manage to work it in and if you have yes. any doubts about that watch a politician on television <laughs> they do it every single day um yeah Absolutely. so all of those things and, and assume your interviewer knows nothing about you they yes. have not read your book because yes. many of them will not have read your book Yes, and some people get really incensed by that. But the reality is they may have, they might be the reporter at that particular publication. They might have been given that assignment that morning. You can't have expected by the editor, you can't have expected them to, you know, um, read your book. Um, And this is you, and this is you doing your job. So you make Mm. sure that the information, like, don't answer yes or no, give them as much as possible in your answer so that they've got somewhere to go with their next question. Definitely. Hmm. All right. All right. That's a really good post. So you can (laughs) check it out at, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, but of course, you can check it out at Alison's blog, which is where, Alison? AlisonTate.com. A double L I S O N T A I T. All right, let's move on to our giveaway. We have three copies and you have your a chance to win one of those three copies of The Tour by Andrew Mackie. 19-year-old identical twins Violet and Daisy Chettle can hardly believe their luck when they are recruited as maids to accompany the Queen's lady-in-waiting on the royal tour to Australia in 1954. However, it's far from the glamorous adventure they expected and their relationship becomes even more strained when one twin discovers her sister's unconscionable act of betrayal. As they travel from the streets of Sydney to the remote sheep stations of Dubbo, they try to make the best of it. Violet is juggling commands from her superiors with the attentions of Aussie driver Jack, while Daisy seeks love in all the wrong places. Have these girls ventured too far from home to ever find their way back? Based around one of the biggest true events in Australian history, the 1954 Royal Tour by the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth II, this is a wickedly entertaining novel about the rifts and rivalries that can be found in every family, royal or not. Wow. Okay, so entries close on the 15th of March. Go to writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to enter and win one of three copies of The Tour by Andrew Mackey. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. 
So now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, look, you know, always ready, Val, always ready. Okay, Luxate, that's L-U-X-A-T-E, Luxate. Do you know that one? No. Okay, so it sounds like it's related to luxury, right, Luxate? Mm, It does. Actually, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it is to put out of joint or dislocate. Oh. Mm. So you could say the contortionist was able to luxate her limbs. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to say that. It sounds like she's soaking them in a tub of lavender bath. (laughs) Oh, yeah, lux. Um, Mm. So, well, you know, you might. So try and use it in a sentence this week, luxate, L-U-X-A-T-E. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course will help you find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love. You'll also have your very own tutor providing personalised feedback on your writing. Here's what Tamsin Janu says. My name is Tamsin Janyu. My latest book is um, Figgy and the President. It's a sequel to the first book I wrote, which is Figgy and the World. Before I did a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I was at uni, I was studying law. I was kind of looking for a creative outlet out of that. And so I decided to do the course for writing for children and young adults at the Australian Writers' Centre because basically studying at uni, um, it was a bit dry and I kind of wanted a creative outlet. So I'd started kind of dabbling in writing here and there. And I really just wanted to learn more uh, about writing in general, about how to write a good book and particularly how to write a good kid's book. Some of the practical things I learned in the course were just, I guess, basic craft things like um, how to write good dialogue, how to create a kind of likeable character. I think the best thing about the course at the Australian Writers' Centre was just really how much I learned and the supportive community there. The course was really great because it really kind of got me motivated to write and it got me excited about writing. I think um, doing the course really helped me um, going into the publishing process uh, because of what I learned, particularly in um, categorising my book and um, where it would fit in the market. For example, I, I write junior fiction, but at the time I thought I was writing a young adult novel. Um, but through the course I learned that my voice was very much more um, junior fiction. And so that really helped Um, in pitching it to the right people and to knowing kind of where to place my language and the story. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it, Al? Well, I have to say I'm a little bit excited. I I had a fangirl moment and I did actually even mention the fangirl moment in the interview. Um, So you can all just take a moment to appreciate my level of excitement. Um, Alison Lester. 
who is one of Australia's, uh, well, she, you know, we're celebrating the fact that she sold over a million books Amazing. with Alan and Unwin. Um, that's, that was kind of like one of the reasons for our discussion. Um, a couple of her books have been re-released with new covers on them, The Quicksand Pony being one of them, and mm. they have, you know, her her illustrations on the cover and they're beautiful. Um, and, yeah, it's like she's a huge favourite in this house. My boys both loved her books, um, the picture books as we were, as they were growing up. And so, um, yeah, I, I took an enormous amount of pleasure and let's just say took an enormous amount of knowledge away from this conversation with Alison Lester. Alison Lester began illustrating children's books in 1979 and wrote her first book, Clive Eats Alligators, in 1985. Since then, she has published more than 25 picture books and two children's novels, won many awards, being the inaugural Australian Children's Laureate with Bori Monty Pryor, which I always struggle over, in 2012, mm-hmm. being the recipient of a member of the Order of Australia and even been featured on a postage stamp. This month, Alison is celebrating reaching 1 million sales with publisher Alan and Unwin, both in Australia and worldwide, and two stories, The Quicksand Pony and The Snow Pony, have been re-released with beautiful new covers. Welcome to the podcast, Alison. Thanks for having me, Alison. So there's a couple of things I need to just get out of the way up front. First of all, I'm a little bit excited to be talking to you. We are huge Alison Lester fans in this house. Um, I have a print oh, in my room from one of your books. And Are We There Yet was one of my – I've got two boys who are now 17 and 14, but it was one of their absolute favourite books when they were younger. So I'm very excited. And the other thing I have to ask you is what is it like seeing your face on a postage stamp? <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. Um, my kids always tease me about the photo because I just got a friend to take that photograph with her phone and they think I look a little bit horse-like. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it is pretty cool to be on the stamp. When when it happened, they gave me this beautiful little gold stamp in a lovely, you know, oh. velvet box. So that's a very beautiful thing to have. Wow, that's amazing. Do you feel like the queen, though? Like I was, <laughs> I was a, bit like... a bit queenly, yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you didn't, you know, you weren't always on postage stamps, so let's go all the way, like we're going to wind back through the mists of time to the beginning. What what drew you to illustrating picture books in the first place? Um, it came about in in quite a sort of random way. I, I, let, I Well, going right back, when I was a little kid, I think I just wanted to ride horses all the time and I thought I'd grow up and be a drover and just spend my days in the outback. And then because I loved animals, I thought I'd be a vet. But when I had to do all those sciences at, you know, at um, in year 11 and 12, I wasn't very good at chemistry and, and those ones. So I ended up finishing school not really knowing what I wanted to do, but I got a, 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 I won a Commonwealth scholarship. And so I did arts at Melbourne Uni, which my sister had done before me. And I think I really just did it because I knew where I'd live. I was, wasn't too sure about what I wanted to do, and that seemed like a safe option. Um, I actually got into a great course at Swinburne Uni called Film and Television, which would have suited me down to the ground. It was a very creative thing, but that seemed a bit too scary to go there. I didn't know where I would live and all that sort of stuff. So I, it would have been a good time to have a, a really nasty adult who to point me in the right direction, but that didn't happen. So I went to uni for a year and just basically went to the pub and mucked around and <laughs> failed half my subjects and um you know, wasted a scholarship that some other kid would have really cherished, I guess. Um, and then after that, my parents put their foot down and said, well, you've got to do something practical. So I signed up to be an art and craft teacher, and that was a four-year course. 
which was a fabulous course because you just did everything from photography to through to woodwork. But you actually didn't do very much teacher training. And when I went teaching, I realized I didn't like it all that much. So I only did that for a year. And in those days, when you did your teacher training, you had a scholarship to live on called a studentship, which was to, was it was enough to live on. Um, and you were supposed to repay the government by teaching for three years. Oh. But in those um, days when feminism was just getting going, if you were a woman and you got married, you only had to teach for a year. So on the strength of that, Eddie and I got married and went to South America <laughs> travelling. And it wasn't until we came back and I was about to have my first baby that I thought, oh, I better really think about what I'm going to do. And I'd spent about six months of my teaching career at the correspondence school in the city where the kids got all their lessons was before the internet, so everything went by mail. And I was teaching art and craft, and they got their um, lessons in these very dry, you know, photocopied um, booklets, and I'd started to illustrate some of them. And a couple of people had said to me, oh, you, you could work as an illustrator. So when I was finally stuck at home and couldn't just be goofing off because I was having a baby, I thought that I would give that a go. And so I got the yellow pages out and found book publishers and rang Oxford University Press and was lucky enough to ask to speak to the children's editor and um, Rosalind Price, who is now a really dear friend, um, answered the phone and said I could come in for an interview. And my my folio was really terrible, but we got on like a house on fire. And when she became a good enough friend to tell me, she said that she actually didn't like my work that much, but she liked me and she thought she could do get me to do much better stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic um, story. Yeah, so she gave me a book to illustrate, which I was just over the moon with. It was like, really? Someone thinks my drawing is good enough to put in a book. And um, so from then I probably spent about five years illustrating other people's books and then finally started um, writing my own stories as well. So but that if, was interesting. It, Sorry. I was going to say, if I'd been knocked back at that very first stage, I wouldn't have had the you know, the gumption to keep going. I, it wasn't something I really wanted to do. It was like, oh, well, I'll give this a go. Um, so I was really lucky that I was um, given a chance and then nurtured so carefully and um, thoughtfully in those early years. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's it, it feels like, oh, you know, I looked it up in the phone book and then here I was sort of thing. And I, I But it takes a lot of gumption and it took a lot of gumption in those days to do that as well. I think that that needs to be you know, considered. You can't just find out everything you want to know on the internet, you know, back then. So it's, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of like you kind of, it's a bit of a well, shot in the dark. That's right. And I did, my heart was in my mouth driving in that day. I had to go into South Melbourne and I was so pregnant, like my pregnancy kind of started from my chin. I was this honest <laughs> woman. And I remember thinking how awful it was going to be. And in fact, it was a really lovely experience. It was a bunch of really nice women who spoke to me. Um, so that was really just a very lucky thing to happen. So interestingly, I uh, I was reading through your website and you said that you, you started writing your own books after working with an author who, and I quote, told you how to draw, which made <laughs> me laugh because I know it's sometimes difficult for authors, you know, when they're working with an illustrator to understand that they, they do need to leave space for the illustrator and the illustrations in a collaborative picture book. Can you explain as an illustrator, you know, how the process of world creation happens for you when you receive the text? Let's let's do that bit first and then we'll get to the bits where you write your own. Well, I haven't done it very much, but um, luckily I, I did one last year. I illustrated a book for my friend Jan Godwin mm. and it, I, 
never thought that I would illustrate a book for someone having not done it for so long. But um, it, it came about that my daughter Claire is an editor and she was publishing this book and the editor, the author, sorry, the illustrator they had fell through oh. and I kind of, oh, maybe I could do it because I really love Janie's work and I like working with her and, of course, I like working with Claire, my daughter. So um, they went, oh, that's a good idea. So I think I was very lucky working with Jane because she she is a bit of a micromanager, but she very much, having been a publisher herself, understands that relationship that you have to leave an awful lot of it to the illustrator. Mm. Um, so it, it was it was pretty a pretty easy fit. But years ago, I actually wrote some stories that Roland Harvey illustrated for me, and I was a monster, like I was so terrible <laughs> telling him what he should be doing. <laughs> so when you when you describe yourself as a monster that is like I want the, this is this is you going I had this in my head when I wrote this and I want the image to look like this is that, is that what you mean by that Well I'm probably being a little bit hard on myself it was it's it's a book called um Horse Crazy so it's four separate stories about these two little girls called Bonnie and Sam who love horses so there were all the illustrations were about horses and Roland didn't know anything about horses so Often he would have their legs in funny positions and their oh. bridles didn't make sense. So it was usually stuff like that that I was quibbling about. I never took him to task about his design or his beautiful watercolours because they're really so exquisite. Um, and, I, yeah, it is. It's so important just to be able to back off and let the illustrator do their thing. Yeah, okay. So I when mean, you... the same thing is with designers. I find that, you know, it's very you – can, you can say that you want the book to look in a, in a certain way, but if you actually say that the designer will show me what you've got in mind, often they will come up with something that you haven't even thought of and you go, oh, wow, that's absolutely magical instead of being too prescriptive. Yeah, I, I like as someone who, like I can see for you because you actually are a very, obviously a very strongly visual person as well as writing with, you know, as well as using words. Um, for me as a writer only, not a particularly visual person, I think I would be pretty happy just to hand the whole thing over and say do something lovely please <laughs> that would it's, be good it's a pretty nice thing yeah I think you're just either born with that way of being able to see things or not I know my husband's when we're talking about house plans and things like that he I go can't you see how it would look and he goes no you'll have to draw it for me and I'll do a quick drawing of how and he goes how can you do that <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's look, it's a mystery to me too. I think your husband and I would get on very well from that perspective. <laughs> when you um when you write your own picture books and when you create them, do you begin with the words or do you start with the image? Um, it's usually a bit of both. Usually, the idea comes from an image. Um, and when I first think, when that first little spark starts in my head, I can see very early on what the book will look like physically, the sort of the shape and the weight of it and, and often even the style. And even though I might try heaps of I'll experiment with lots of different techniques, I will often come back to that very first image I have of it. But once I kind of get the idea in my head, I'll often have it in my head for months before I write anything down, um, although I've got one on the go at the moment. And when I found some notes that I'd written and up the top it had written Johnny Suey Cove 3am and um, I realised that we've been out hiking on Wilson's Promontory and I must have woken up in the middle of the night in my tent unable to sleep and been thinking about this book and thought, I have to write this down or I'll forget it. So, yeah, it is. <laughs> at least you is, did that. <laughs> um, um, Yeah, I was so pleased I did because you, I do forget things. Like I come up with... At the time, they sound like great rhymes and ideas, and then if you don't write them down, sometimes they just vanish. 
But having said that, there's a lot of times when a story is just rolling on my head for a long time where if I'm walking or riding my horse or driving the car or lying awake at night, I'll just have those words in my head, just tossing them around and trying to get them as perfect as I can. Do you like redraft a lot when it comes to the words is, or, or is it sort of when you actually get to the point of, of writing them down, are they close to where you want them to be? I know there's always heaps of redrafting. I I just love that process of um, – I remember my first editor, Rose Price, said to me, the hardest thing is making something out of nothing. So that's that actually coming up with that story and getting it down. And then once that's happened, then I love the process of editing where you just hone it and polish it and try and make it as seamless as you can so that when – I think especially because I mainly do picture books where the, there's so few words you can afford to polish them you know, really intensely so they can be as perfect as possible. So, yeah, I do lots and lots of drafts. And what is it like because, you know, we, we often talk about picture books and, I mean, uh, that they are um, very difficult to get right even though they don't look like they are very difficult to get right. Um, and people often, you know, people say, I, I don't understand, like you just don't, it's like the, you've got 500 words and maybe you have to change a couple. But what does the polishing look like for you? Is it a, is it a total rewrite or is it – taking words out, putting words in, what sort of thing does it look like? Um, it's usually trying to make it less wordy, trying to get the essence of it down to something really simple but powerful. So sometimes it will be substituting words. Every now and again one of my editors will go, oh, well, what about we do this? And then it could be quite a big change. But usually within the rhythm that I'm working with, it's really just finding the most perfect way of saying it where there's no – there's no words that I don't need um, and there's a really good rhythm so that when you read it, you're not caught up at all, that the, the rhyme and the rhythm just comes across really naturally. And so I know that you've drawn on your own childhood, um, you know, on the Victorian coast for some of your stories and I, I really laughed when I saw on your um, website that the idea for Kiss by the Moon came from a label on a jumper. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, right, that's good. Um, you're, so you're clearly always on the lookout for ideas but I think one of the other things that people struggle with with a, a picture book in particular is is knowing when the idea is enough to sustain a whole story and not just be like an anecdote or a snippet like that there's there's an entire narrative in that you know 500 words or, or however many words you have in the book how do you know like how do you know when kiss by the moon is enough to be an actual picture book yeah that is really the tricky thing isn't it from just that little thing like but i had a sack of grandkids down here the other day and the littlest one winnie who we call bubbers is so bossy and i was saying I'm going to write a book called Bubba's the Boss, you know. So you, you say things like that. And what was the other one? Oh, and also Frank has a, a, a little soft thing called Ducky that he really loves. And I, would, I was talking about maybe doing a book about all the adventures of Ducky because he's been run over and locked in a lunchbox. And, you know, <laughs> about every year I have to do him a, give him a complete new set of clothes because he's just falling to pieces. But you're right. They're, like, they're, they're nice ideas. but And usually – Usually they stay in my head for a while enough that I really start thinking about them. And and I think often the trick is it doesn't have to just be that. You use that as your jumping off point and then you weave a story into it. And that's, I guess, having done it for so long, it's easy for me to turn something like that into something that is sustained, you know, mm. a sustainable story. Um, 
yeah, it, it needs to stand on its own two feet, doesn't it? It does. And I, I guess, you know, as you say, you've been doing this for a, a long time and incredibly successfully. So um, I, I guess the just the practice and the repetition. Have you had situations, though, where you've you've worked on something and it, it just hasn't come together for you? Mm, I've got masses of folders of ideas where I've, you know, just put a few things down and then gone away and left it. And every now and again when I'm cleaning stuff out, I go, oh, that old one, you know, I wonder if that'll turn into something. But usually, um, usually, you know, I've seen another bright, shiny object that I've moved <laughs> on to and <laughs> forgotten. But like I would say to anyone, never throw that stuff out, you know, because I'm assuming that at some stage in my life the ideas will run out and it'll be nice to be able to go back and Oh, you'll be going back to the folder. <laughs> Do you do you work every day at writing and illustrating or is your year divided into blocks or you know oh, I'm really I'm ashamed to say I hardly ever work I'm um it's it for me that that's the hardest thing is actually getting to my desk and working um last October I I quarantined at Howard Springs outside Darwin so I could go and visit my daughter in um Brisbane and so I had two weeks where I was just locked up and I did so much work and I really <laughs> Just it was it was a treat. I was so happy, like there were no other demands on my time, and I really haven't done any work since then. Like we're into February now, so I'm I'm re- I'm starting to feel a bit twitchy, you know, that it really is time. But I don't know. The days just get filled up with family and and things that have to be done. So yeah, I'm I'm I've got a terrible work ethic. <laughs> it's good. To, I take heart from that. That's great to know. <laughs> so given that, how long does it actually take you to create? A new picture book, for example. Well, usually I'll paint myself into a corner so that it really has to be done. You know that I've got like six weeks or so, or maybe that's. Mm, I probably I, I seem to be getting worse and worse. Like I give myself less and less time, so the publishers and the editors are tearing their hair out and going, "No, I can do it. I can do it." And then I'll just work all day and all night until I get it done, which is a crazy way to work, really, because it means that I don't take probably the time to experiment and and do different things but at the moment when all the grandkids are little it seems to be about the only way that I can work is just to squeeze it into a short space of time and and really condense it but by the time I get to that space I've often done a lot of mucking around so that when I actually sit down to work I'm really ready to go but um, when kids at school ask me that question I say if I came to school for a term and just did nothing but a book I could probably get a book done in a term. Right. If that's all you did, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you always know when you've written one that's really special, or does it sometimes surprise you how popular you know certain books have become? Yeah, it can be a bit of a surprise. I remember when I finished Are We There Yet, and I said to the ed- my editor, I don't know who's going to buy this. Like it seemed like didn't seem like a very obvious book for kids about a family travelling around Australia, but it's sold yeah stacks of books. So, yeah, it's very hard to say. And then sometimes ones that I love, no one else likes very much. (laughs) (laughs) Not always the way. Um, So you have travelled quite a bit. Like you've been to Antarctica, which is exciting. I've actually got one of your prints from from that trip. And you've you've travelled overseas, you know, to speak obviously many times. Um, You have drawn on travels around Australia for for Are We There Yet? Um, And yet a lot of your books actually draw on your own childhood and the sort of countryside around you, which is not too far from where you grew up. What is it that brings you back to that place in your mind over and over, like that childhood and that sort of, you know, that environment and all of that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think I think it's that very thing that, that it's where I grew up, that where I spent all my childhood just immersed in that landscape and and feeling so much part of it. That it's it's what I always come back to. Yeah, the the hills and the sea and the beaches and the mountains in the distance. Um, I mean, there's lots of other places I love, but that seems to be the the thing that's really sort of at the heart of it all. Do you think it makes it easier for you to think like a kid when you're in a place like that? Like well, in, think, in where you were a child? I think so, yeah. Um, Gillian Rubenstein reckons that we're all stuck in a part of our childhood and I think that's probably right that I that, that little kid stage is a stage that I always um, feel very that I'm really part of still. I, I guess I go, I mean, I know I'm an adult, but I have quite a, um innocent way of seeing joy in the world and 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 being positive to the way kids are. Mm, that's lovely. So that might be the thing that's that a nice stuck place with me. To be. <laughs> yeah, that is, I had it. Well, it's just lucky, isn't it, that you end up with the personality that you have. But I think a, a big part of it was growing up on that big farm and having the freedom just to ride my pony and dream and daydream and just, yeah, let my imagination go wild. So you actually have a couple of longer form children's novels, um, The Quicksand Pony, and which uh, came out first in 90, 1997, and then The Snow Pony, which came out in 2001. And they're, they're being re-released with new covers featuring your illustrations. Um, what drew you to writing those two particular stories as longer stories, not, not picture books? Um, the Quicksand Pony was a family story that I used to tell my kids and then I told it to my editor once and she said, oh, you've got to write that and then nag me until I did. And I guess I'd always thought it would be great to write a novel. Um, so that, that was a very quick book to write, like it just kind of poured out of me. Um, and I really loved, like it, it felt, because it is set in that landscape of Wilson's Promontory, it really felt very much part of me that, that I was writing it. Um, and also my kids have got a bit older too. I seem to always go with what's around me. So when they were little, I was writing books for little kids and then as they got older, I wrote slightly older novels. And then now I've got little grandchildren, I've gone back to doing picture books for little kids again. But I did love that thing of sitting down and writing the novels. But I don't know if I'll ever do another one. It seems incredibly hard to find the time to sit at your desk day after day writing. Did you find it, like, did you have to, uh, I mean, you know, just with the obviously sheer number of words is longer than a picture book, but what was there anything else that surprised you about the process of writing that longer form? Like, was it, you said the first one kind of poured out of you as a family kind of story. Um, with the second one, was it more difficult? Um, yeah, the second one I tried to write in the same way and then I realised I needed to plan it a little bit more. But I think the thing I loved about writing a longer book was that occasionally it would just take me, it would just take off with me, you know, that I would be thinking I'm going to write this and then that character would do something that I didn't think had even entered my head but it was obviously coming out of my head. So I just really loved that that when you got so deep into it that it just took off and um, you, you kind of thought, wow, what's going to happen next? I know. <laughs> I know. This is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it was horrific. It's a very um, thoughtful story and it's, it kind of it's almost reads like a it's got a magical fable -y kind of feel to it in a funny way. Um, but it also um, covers – there's some fairly big themes in this, like it, when, you know, I, I speak as a – as a um, 
you know, modern parent. It's a, you know, big themes. There's, you know, there's some death. There's a lot of danger there for the poor old pony. I was very worried. Um, do you, do you think that modern parents are more worried about big themes like that than, than parents were when you were writing the book? Have you ever had any sort of feedback on that sort of stuff? I think they probably are. And I know when I did this, um, my editor got me to go through it and actually revised some of the texts where I'd used terms that were really not as, they weren't acceptable anymore, things that were a bit politically incorrect. Like ah, I think right. at one stage the grandfather says, you can put me in the loony bin if you like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and um, I think we were, I was allowed to keep that because he was an old man, but there were various slang things that people would take as being offensive. Mm. And um, I think that's fair enough too that, you know, things things change as you go along. But, um, I mean, I just love a good adventure and I think it's just fabulous for kids to be able to um, imagine themselves being in, in a situation where they've got to be really brave and powerful. Mm. Um, and it's very evocative. Like the landscape is a, is a very, you know, big part of the story um, and the – you know, I, I can feel I can feel your familiarity with that with that um, landscape as you create that world. Did that make it yeah. easier? Do you think to kind of? Oh I, yeah, I could see it all, and I think probably with the quicksand pony, it's never it's never humans that are the danger. It's actually them being out in the wild and just coping with what's all around them. Whereas in the snow pony, um, they're actually bad people in that. And I have over the years had complaints from. Um, you know, people who rang up and said, I thought my daughter was safe reading an Alice and Lester book and oh. she was so upset by because there's a scene where there's a really nasty man who tries to grab the little girl. Um, and so, yeah, that's a different kettle of fish. And we probably should have, we probably should have made it clear or clearer that that book was for a much older audience than the quicksand pony. Yeah. Um, okay. It's a tricky thing, isn't it? It is tricky. Like, I mean, and it's you write the story as the story, you know, comes out and as the story, you know, needs to be written. And then, and then, of course, you know, publishing as an industry comes into it and readers come into it. And it's some, um, as you say, an expect, there's an expectation like Alice and Lester writes a certain type of book. So my child is safe. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, but then sometimes stories surprise. Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? Like you can get impatient with political correctness, but it it is it is political correctness is often us becoming more aware of what what how what we say affects people who are yes. often a bit marginalised. So yes. I think it's something that just has to be dealt with. And On the other, hand, you don't want your books to be so bland; they look like they've been written by a committee. <laughs> The Alison Lester Committee will now <laughs> convene. Um, what sort of other changes have you seen over the course of your career in children's publishing? Is there anything that really stands out for you that's you know different now to what it was when you were starting out? Um, hmm. I, I think for me the huge difference has been digital, all the digital stuff for mm. illustrating. In the early days, my illustrations had to be correct, like there was nothing that could be changed. And then as soon as the whole digital age came about, if a dog's tail was too long, we could make it shorter and we could make a blue a little bit less blue and all that sort of stuff. So that's been just a huge – it's made life so much easier just Mm. to be able to adjust your drawings. And I've I've been really left behind. Like most people now use some sort of digital stuff like Procreate 
in their illustrations so they can layer. And um, I'm a bit too stupid and old to have done that. And when I look at some of the work that people are doing now, I think, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. I wish I could do it. And maybe maybe one day I'll get cracking and try and <laughs> catch up, but I might be stuck doing it the old way. <laughs> With all that time that you have. Um, yes. What about promotion? Like what sort of things, I mean, you know, you sort of are Alice and Lester, so there's a certain amount of kind of promotion that just comes with you putting out a new book. But do you also have to do, are you doing any sort of digital promotion, like any social media or anything like that? Or, you know, has anything changed for you in that area? I guess I guess the main thing that changed was, um, I don't know, probably about six years ago, um, we set up a little shop, which is called the Alison Lester Gallery. Mm. And um, because we have that retail outlet, there's a um, there's a an Instagram and a Facebook page that goes with that. So because um, it's also an online shop, so yeah, that has been something that um, John, who manages the shop, often puts things up. And if I have something a bit work related, I'll put it on Instagram and link it to Facebook, so that goes out into the world as well. Yeah. And then during the um, during the first lockdown last year, I thought it would be a really nice thing to read some stories. So I actually read all my books and put them up on Instagram so people could see them and share them with their kids. And that seemed to make a huge difference to – I didn't do it for that reason, but that seemed to make a huge difference to the following we had on Instagram and Facebook. People I'm really sure. love being able to know there was a story coming every day. Yeah, that's a, a great initiative. So will you leave those there? Will they stay up there forever or will you take them I down? Think, well, I think they're there. I think I need to do them better. I just did them with my phone. It was so frustrating doing them. Like I'd, I would always set up and I think, okay, the light looks okay. I don't look too bad. And then the dog would start barking or someone <laughs> would knock on the door or a tractor <laughs> would go past. It was just like, oh, the cat would jump and knock the, you know, knock the camera over. And, um, yeah, so it was very frustrating and it, it was a great relief when I finally read the last book. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for Alison Lester? You said you're working on something at the moment? Yeah, I've got a few different projects on the go. I think um, I think what's next is probably Noni the Pony's Counting Book. Um, right. which I, I did all the roughs for that when I was in quarantine in Darwin. And then I, years ago I did a series of books starting with Clive Eats Alligators and oh, yeah. there's still one called Nikki Catches Koalas that needs to be illustrated. It's been written for about 20 years. So <laughs> that and um, then I've, I've just signed a contract to um, do a book called Tiny, A Tiny Light, which is um, a really sweet little story about these little people who come down from the stars when you go to bed at night and whiz around your room and, and bless you with the sweetest dreams so that you can – sleep all night and wake up fresh for the for the next day. Um, mm. And then there's a book about um, that's set out at the lighthouse at Wilson's Promontory about a little girl who's obsessed with whales who has an adventure as she watches the whales go by. Yeah, so there's there's always I'm always about three years behind. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a statement. I'm always about three years behind. What a way to live. <laughs> All right, so um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. So what's your website address if people want to um, have a quick look at your website and your, you know, various prints and cards and all the other merch? You've got merch. Uh, yeah, I've got merch. Um, I think it's just alisonleister.com or if they just Google Alison Lester, Yes, It'll so that's A-L-I-S-O-N-L-E-S-T-E-R.com. We'll have to make it clear because I always pronounce, oh yeah, I've got the two L's in my name and so everyone who listens to this hears a double L every single week. So Alison Lester has only one L, everyone, okay? Yeah. All right. No, I, don't, 
I never <laughs> wanted to be called Alice, and I always wish I was Alice. So I guess it's probably a bit too late to change that. But anyway. Well, you could have been Alice on your books all those years. You could have yeah. just done that, changed your name. All right, so we're going to finish up today with our uh, final, you know, challenge for you, which is what we always do. Um, what are your top three tips for writers, Alice and Lester? Okay, well, the first one, which is one that I find most trouble doing, is actually sitting at your desk, just <laughs> Sit at your desk and write. Like it's so easy to talk about it, but unless you actually sit down and do it, nothing will happen. So that's my first one. I guess my second one goes against that, and that would be don't just sit at your desk. Get out and live your life so you have lots of rich experiences to write about. That, you know, every time something happens to you in life, it's it's something that you can use in your writing. Um and then I guess my other tip would be um, don't be afraid to let your work get edited. Don't be so precious that you won't change anything. You know, get it all down there, polish it, and then give it to someone you trust and, and, and be prepared to take some advice, also to argue for something you really believe in. But um, don't do it in a vacuum and, and be so precious that you won't change anything. Beautiful. That sounds great. Well, best of luck with your next three years' worth of work that you have to catch, <laughs> to catch up on. And um, and also, of course, congratulations from all of us on your one million sales with Alan and Unwin. That's an amazing achievement. And I hope one day I might see myself on a stamp, but, you know, that's, that could just be a pipe dream. Thanks, Alison. Oh, thanks for having me on. Bye, Alison. There you go, Alison Lester. That was awesome. Yeah, it was a great, a really great conversation. I, I just think you, you know, when you've been talking to someone who's been, you know, working at things as long as she has and mm. to, as the higher level as she does, mm. um, there's always going to be, you know, things to learn. I think the way that she got her start was, you know, quite extraordinary. And I mm. think that, um, you know, the fact that she still just, uh, you know, I love the way she says, oh, I don't work very much. I just sort of sit down and get it done when I have to. <laughs> um, you know, like I just think, well, you know, that not that where we'd all like to be really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Sounds good. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh let's see. I've got some roadieing to do this week. Uh roadieing. Yeah, oh, Joe's okay. Joe's got a couple of gigs, so I'll be I'll be driving the car and carrying the guitar. I don't cool. do so much of the carrying of the guitar anymore, it's true, no. but uh, still we're nearly there. Like he's almost uh, almost ready to do his driving test, which Excellent. can we all just take an excited deep breath about that um so he'll soon be able to take himself to things but um unfortunately being you know underage I still I have to attend a lot of the gigs still because he's yeah. now playing a lot of licensed venues and he has to have a <laughs> he has to have a chaperone which he hates as you can imagine <laughs> uh, yeah and do you go by yourself or are you there with your husband Oh, it depends. Um, sometimes, you know, it's a full – like last time he he played a couple of weeks ago and, you know, we had a full, you know, I don't know, eight or ten of us went along oh, to that. Okay. just depends on where he's playing and what he's doing. Sometimes I just – it's just me. Um, and you just prop usually, yourself up at the bar and – well, you know, I just I just try to fade into the wallpaper, really. Like it's honestly, I mean, like some of the places I go, there's all these incredibly hip young people wandering about and there's mm. me, you know, like just sort of <laughs> propped up in a corner quietly. You're hip and young? Oh, not, not, do you know what? You think you're hip and young until you're in a group of people that are really actually hip and young and yes. then you realise how not hip and young you truly are. <laughs> it's awesome. Anyway, All right, so you're roadieing. 
I'll be roadieing, yeah. Good. What about um, you? Are you uh, roadieing? No, I am not roadieing, but I am hoping to have more food wins this week. Well, I hope, yeah. Look, honestly, like it's it saddens me when your expectations <laughs> aren't met. So I'm sort of hoping, hoping that you have at least, maybe the cronut shop will at least be open for you this week, yeah? Oh, I don't want to get my hopes up. Anyway, no. where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. But we'd also love to connect with all of you over on Facebook. Just go to the um, uh, our Facebook listener community. Search oh. for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's free to join and it's some great conversations and just a wonderful group of people in there. So come and join us. Come join us. All right. So that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) We've limped to the end, everyone. (laughs) And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>